Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Let your heart hold fast to mine Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. The date was May 14, 1804, when Meriwether Lewis and William Clark set out from St. Louis to go and explore and look for what they called the Great Northwest Passage. They were commissioned by then-President Thomas Jefferson to, to find a water passage from the West Coast that stretched all the way to the East Coast. And so they left from the St. Louis area where the Mississippi River and the Missouri River meet, and they started to make their way up the Missouri River. Can you imagine? Uh, Much of the time, standing on the shores and dragging their boats with ropes that were attached to their canoes, sometimes sitting in their boats and with a long pole pushing themselves along the bottom, it should be no surprise to you and I that they didn't exactly make good time. It was 12 to 15 miles a day max working all day to make that type of progress. And when they finally got to the headwaters of the Missouri and started to make their way up to the Continental Divide in Montana, um, Meriwether Lewis made it there first. And he stepped back and hoping to see the Columbia River, if you've stood at that point or even been to the Continental Divide now, In Colorado, you know that there's no river to be seen. And one of the biographers who wrote about him said that he shifted at that point from a geography of hope to a geography of reality. That he stood on that mountain and with his canoes in tow, knew that there were some things that he was going to have to change about his course about what he brought with him if he was going to get to the places that he hoped to get to. And, and at that point, Lewis, had and, um, Lewis and Clark had some decisions to make. Do we just sort of tap out and do we call it a good trip, a good exploration? We found out you can't make it. Or, or do, we, do we change and do we grow and do we chart a, a new course? See, all of us will eventually, if we haven't already, we will find ourselves in the place where the the things that we did to get to the place we were at are insufficient to get us to the places we long to go. The the attitudes, the the mindsets, some of even the beliefs that we've held so dear, they took us to a certain point, but but God, by his spirit, is beckoning us forward, is, ca- is calling us forward, is calling us to more. And so the question we have to wrestle with is the same question that Lewis and Clark wrestled with at the Continental Divide. Are we going to hold on to our canoes and try to canoe the mountains? Or are we going to change our course? Are we going to change our mindset? And before we go, before you say, hey, well, we're going to change our mindset. If you've ever been there, you know that that's a painful journey. 
You, you know that the vision you had, the hopes you had, the dreams you had to, to let go of them or to know that it's going to be a lot longer journey to get there than you could have ever possibly imagined, that that's not an easy thing. Uh, I'm reminded of this uh, in my uh, coaching of eight-year-olds, uh, their baseball team. My son's eight years old, and I coach their baseball team. And um, I've got a few kids on the team that they throw the baseball like they're throwing a shot put from behind their ear. I mean, it's like, they're, they're doing that deal. You know, the two-finger, hey, go where I hope, please, Jesus, that type of thing. It's the way some of our South Fellowship softball teams throw the ball, too. Um, we're working on it. We'll get there. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that at the end of a season, the, uh, the parents should not give a baseball coach a gift card to go to get sporting um, equipment or to go out to dinner. They should get like a few sessions of counseling. That's what they should get. You should just, here's three sessions of counseling to sort of undo all that angst that's in you now from this season. But here's my hope, right? Like that, the, the shot put from behind the ear, it worked when you were four in the backyard, but, but it doesn't work anymore. And so my hope is to, to shape, my hope is to correct, my hope is to teach because there's something better, there's a better way. And, and my hope isn't just to win baseball games, it's to let kids enjoy and learn and love the game and to be more successful. And in order to do that, they've got to let go of some things that they've been carrying and embrace some new things. And if, you, you're, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, did you know, will you look up at me for just a moment? You're on the same journey. You're on the same journey of, of becoming, of uh, maybe some things, some attitudes, some thoughts, some patterns of, of life that got you to a certain point. Like it was okay to hold on to your anger up to a certain point, but you know now you can't grow beyond it. That that bitterness and lack of forgiveness, that, that it felt like a comfort, it felt like a home because it was just so knowable. You, you knew what to expect, but, but, but God's inviting you to, to let go of it, to move to a different spot. And so the question becomes, as we interact with God, as we walk with God, are we, are we willing to let go of our canoes or are we going to try to canoe the mountains? And this word of letting go, this, this idea of moving forward in a new way than we've charted up to that point has a word in the scriptures. And the word is called discipline. It's God's discipline. It's God saying, hey, that worked to a certain point. Now there's something new. And we're journeying through this book of Proverbs together as a, as a church community this summer. And if you're here last week, you heard over and over my mantra that, that Proverbs are, they are short, pithy statements about the way that the world generally works, okay? So you'll read through the Proverbs sometimes and you'll go, well, that promise, that doesn't happen all the time. You're right, it doesn't. And you know what? You can know if it doesn't happen all the time. It's not a promise, okay? It's not a promise. So Proverbs are short, pithy statements about the way that the world generally works. Most of them you could tweet out, 140 characters or less, okay? But Proverbs are principles. They're not promises. They're principles. They're not promises. And so I just, I just want to hear you say it. I just want the words to come out of your mouth. It's so important as we study this book. We'll say it together every week. South Fellowship Church, will you join me in saying that the Proverbs are principles. They're not Nailed it. All right, here we go. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon writing this portion of Proverbs to his son, which 
happens to apply on Father's Day. Praise the Lord. My son, he writes, do not despise the Lord. Say it with me. Discipline or be weary of his reproof. So when you, when you look at, when Solomon looks at his son, his longing and his hope for his son is, hey, don't push back against what God wants to do in your life. Um, you could read discipline as correction. You could read it as training. You could read it as teaching or shaping, making and molding us into new kinds of people. And here's why Solomon has to write this. Because our tendency, when God disciplines us, when God corrects us, when he says, hey, those canoes worked to, up to this point, they're not going to work anymore. When that throwing the shot put from behind your ear, that worked up to this point, it's not going to work anymore. It's not going to take you where you want to go. can be a really painful thing, can it? Uh, here's the way that Corey Temboom put it. Um, she said it brilliantly when she said, it hurts when God has to pry things out of our hand. Anybody want to say amen? Amen. But as we go on this journey with God, here's what we can be sure of. Here's what we can know of. Is that God's correction in our life, God's discipline in our life, God's training, teaching, making, molding, is all intended to chart a course for our joy. So Proverbs 12, verse 1, Solomon writing once again, short, pithy statements about the way that the world generally, generally works, says, whoever loves discipline, that, that correction, loves knowledge. Why? Because God's shaping us more and more into the, to walk in the flow of the reality of the world that he's created. That's what wisdom is. It's walking in the reality of the world God's created. And he goes, all right, people who, who love discipline, even though it's hard, they love knowledge. They love growing. But the person who hates reproof is, say it with me, church, stupid. Yeah, I knew you just wanted to say that in church. So <laughs> welcome. You can email me, thank me later, right? Yeah, but if we're unwilling to grow, we're at this place that Proverbs would say, we're the, we're the fool. We're the fool. So I had some questions. As I started to wrestle with God's discipline or correction in our life, I had some questions. You, you might have some of these questions too, because this word is, is pretty layered. So here is my first question. How does God discipline his people? What does that look like? I know some of the ways that I discipline my, my kids, but what does God's discipline look like in the lives of his people? If you, if you have a Bible, keep your finger in Proverbs 3. We're going to come back there, but, but flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Because the author of Hebrews is, is going to pick up this passage from Proverbs and, and really expand on it and put it in the reality of the ground that people actually live in. And here's what he writes to the church, the Hebrew, of Hebrew people, people who are, who are Jewish by ethnicity, who have started to follow the way of Jesus. Here's what he says. Consider him who endured from such sinners. So, so Jesus, talking about Jesus, he suffers evil, not at the hands of God, but at the hands of sinners. Such hostility against himself so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. So when you walk through difficult situations, remember Jesus. In your struggle against sin, you've resisted to the point, or you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, as if to say, that might be coming for you. And you have forgotten, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This should sound pretty familiar. My son, do not regard lightly the what? 
discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord's discipline, the one, the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Fascinating passage. So what does God's discipline look like? Well, in this instance, what the author of Hebrews is pointing out is that it looks like two things. It looks internal at the conviction of sin in our lives. So it might feel like you saying something and immediately the Spirit of God puts its finger on it in your life and says, oh, that, that was just for you. That, that was to prop yourself up a little bit and to put somebody else down. It may feel like the Spirit of God speaking over your life and saying, listen, that, that jealousy or that greed that you've been holding on to, it's time to let go. Those, those canoes, they worked to this point, but they won't take you where you want to go. It's internal conviction from the Spirit and an invitation to repent, which is simply to change our mind. This way doesn't work anymore. I'm believing this way now, and my feet are following my conviction in my heart. Internal. But it's also, and this is a little bit more problematic, external. It's also the evil world that we live in, God using it, even some really difficult hardship at the hands of sinners to shape us, make us, and mold us more into his image. So here's the way I'd say it. How does God discipline us? Well, God disciplines us by being present with us through every circumstance that we find ourselves in in this life. When we are aware of God's presence, the entire world is his laboratory for teaching us how to walk in wisdom. So the author of Proverbs would step back and go, hey, don't push back against correction in a parking lot or in a church service or at your work or in your neighborhood. Become students of the way of wisdom and his classroom is simply his world. That changes things, doesn't it? So his discipline, his correction, his training, his shaping of us happens every moment of every day that we are aware of his presence in our lives. Because, hey, this just in, you are an unfinished product, okay? So we just, we just say it to the person next to you, just tell them, I'm an unfinished product. I'm still growing. I'm moving to become more and more the person that God is inviting me to become? That was my first question. My second question. So the first question is, how does God discipline us? Well, by being present through every circumstance in life. Some of you got a little bit too much um, joy out of hearing somebody say that to you, okay? Um, we have good counselors we can pair you up with. We love to let you... Just kidding. Just kidding. Here, here's my second question. Are discipline and punishment the same thing? And... My answer, looking at the scriptures, was no. So punishment is simply retributive. You did wrong, and you need to pay. Discipline, however, discipline is restorative. You did wrong, let's chart a way towards better, towards good, towards life. See, punishment says you've got to pay. Discipline says I want to help you change. Right? So any parent knows your goal for your kids when you discipline them is to help them change, is to help them become different kinds of people. 
Right? So I'll have conversations with my eight-year-old son, Ethan, like after we discipline him and say, hey, buddy, the reason we're coming down so hard on you is because we want you to have friends when you grow up. <laughs> and nobody wants to be friends with that kind of person. So you just need to sit in that for a while, and we're helping to shape you and make you and mold you. Or, or hey, hey, buddy, here's the thing. If you're going to live with yourself at the center of your universe for your entire life, you are going to be miserable. And we want your joy, and your joy is found in looking outside of yourself to other people and to learning how to have a generous heart, right? So we're not just saying we're punishing you for being wrong and for doing this thing. It's we're shaping you to become a different kind of person. See, see in the church, sometimes we talk a lot about what God wants from us. He wants us to obey. He wants us to do this and that. I don't think we spend nearly enough time thinking about what God wants for us. What he wants for us and the type of people that he is inviting us to become so that we walk in his world with his joy. Here's my third question. What does discipline require of us? Because if God is the discipliner and I am the disciplinee, it appears, at least at first glance, that my role could be fairly passive. The only problem with that is what Solomon writes to his son. He says this. He says, my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Don't, don't resist it. Don't hate it. Don't push back against it. And don't tap out before God is done working what he's doing in your life through the circumstance that you're walking with him through. So here's his two admonitions Long for it and last in it. Long for it and last in it because here's what he knows. He knows that our approach to God's discipline in our life determines our growth through affliction. The posture that you take as you walk through difficult circumstances, the posture you take as the spirit convicts of, of sin and leads you to righteousness, to let go of the canoes and buy the horses, if you, you will, our approach to that, our posture to that, determines what we get out of it. Here's the thing. You've all seen people that have walked through really difficult circumstances. And some people walk through a season of pain or a season of loss, a season of lament, and they get to the end of it, and they're better for it. And some people walk through a season of pain bitterness, lament, and loss, and they come out the other end and they're not better, they're bitter. What, what's the difference? Because God is at work in both of those situations. The difference is, what's their approach? What's their, what's their posture? And so Solomon pleads with his son, don't despise it, long for it. Long for it. God, I, I know this is painful and I would never choose this but I know you're present in it. The wrong question, and I hear many people ask this question and I ask this question too. The wrong question is, why is this happening to me? You ever ask that? Why is this happening to me? The right question is, God, what are you teaching me? And how are you shaping me? 
That, that's a, I long for it, God. Life is your laboratory. I want to learn and I want to grow. You're present here in the nitty gritty of this really dark situation. And I want to be present to you who are present with me. And I want you to use it to make and shape and mold me so that I grow to become the type of person that you're asking me to become. You're inviting me to become. So instead of asking, why is this happening to me? God, how are you growing me? That's an approach. That's a, I, I long for it. The second is, I last in it. I don't become weary. Do you know why Solomon has to write this to his son? Because our tendency is that we would despise God's discipline and that we would grow weary of it. That's why he writes it. Because these are our natural tendencies. So, so I've said this before, I'll say it again. I am part of the tap-out generation. Okay? When things get difficult, my generation... God must not be in this, we're out, right? And I think what we do is we remove ourselves from the place where God can most work in our lives. So when things get hard, don't just, don't try to remove yourself, he would say, Proverbs would say. Last in it. Don't, don't grow cold. Don't just check out. Don't just assume that, well, God's work is now done. Be present to God who is working still. In you. It doesn't mean that we're masochistic and trying to pursue difficult situations. Hey, this just in. They're going to come for you. The question is, how do we respond when we do? As the author of Hebrews starts to pick up this verse and write about it, ground it in the soil of their community, he, he uses this word endure. Endure in it which literally would mean to remain under the weight of something. So don't, don't try to get out of the way of the weight of that pain, of that circumstance, of that trial, before God's done his shaping, redeeming, life, death, resurrection work in you through whatever it is that you're walking through. Long for it and last in it. And so you may be going, all right, well, Paulson, that's nominally helpful, but how do we really do that? How do we embrace this posture of walking with God as he starts to shape a new course that leads to our joy? And, and how, do we, how do we remain, our approach to remain with God during his discipline that would lead to our growth through affliction? I'm really glad you asked that, okay? So here's how we do it. Proverbs chapter verse 12, Solomon continues to write. He says, long for it and last in it, for the Lord reproves or disciplines him whom he, say it with me church, loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. All right, will you look up at me for a moment? Because we just, we need to do a little bit of business because I think we have this backwards and we have this wrong, okay? I think most people assume that God disciplines them so that he can love them. That he changes them so that they're now lovable. But that's not at all what the scriptures teach. It's actually the opposite, and that distinction is important. That God loves us, therefore he changes us. Therefore, he works in us. Therefore, his spirit resides and says, hey, there's a better way. That got you to this point, but it will not get you to where I am inviting you to go. 
See, God's correction in our life is always motivated by his love. So the author of Hebrews, the author of Proverbs will always continually point back to, you are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you're going to have the right approach to his invitation in your life to become different kinds of people as he corrects and changes, shapes, makes, and molds, we have got to be convinced that we are the beloved. That we are God's beloved. That he is at work in our lives, not so that he can love us, but because he loves us. And just a a little Father's Day wisdom nugget for you. What's true of God's relationship with us is also true of our relationship with our earthly kids. That if they're going to accept our discipline in their lives, they have to be convinced we love them. They have to be convinced that we are for them, that we are fighting for their joy. It's true of parents and kids. It's true of bosses and employees. It's true of coaches. It's true of leaders and the people that are following after them. See, position may give you power, but love will give you influence. Position will give you power, but only love will give you influence. And so that's where Solomon starts. He goes, all right, Eric, before we get into anything else, let's just be convinced that the Creator God, who spoke it all into existence and calls each star out by name every single night, is singing over you, is holding you, is passionately, ferociously for you and good. So Paul will write to the church at Ephesus. He he will say, he goes, my prayer for you, church, My prayer for you, South Fellowship Church, is that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That the ground of your very being, the thing that holds you and everything else abandons you, is that you are found in the love of the Father who not only created you but sustains you, gave his life for you to invite you back into the life that he originally intended to give you. And you can't grow beyond that. We just grow deeper and deeper into it. I said his, his love is ferocious, it's strong, it's a pursuing love, it's, it's the kind of love that C.S. Lewis talks about in, in The Problem of Pain, where, where he, says, he says, we want not so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. A, a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as you're happy? Because that's the kind of God we want. This just in, that's not the kind of God you have. He loves you more than that. So don't confuse his love with an anticipation of ease. Don't confuse his love with a, a hope for just being comfortable. He's way, way better than that. He wants to make you, change you, mold you into becoming the type of people who walk with him in the joy that he has for us. We just, we just soak in that for a moment. The ground of your very being is found in the reality of his love. He doesn't discipline you so that he can love you. He disciplines you because he loves you. 
here's the way that Solomon continues, or actually it's the way he begins, and we, we started with the crescendo. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 3. My, my son, do not forget my, say it with me, church, teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Don't, don't forget the way that I'm allowing you, inviting you to become different kinds of people. So our posture first is we're grounded in love. Our second posture, the second layer of our posture to God is we have a teachable spirit. Which Solomon says it's a heart condition. A heart condition that pushes back against pride. A heart condition that pushes back the assumption that we've got it all together and that we've got life figured out. Here's another word for it if you want to write it down. A teachable spirit. Another word for a teachable spirit is humility. Humility. This recognition that we are a work in progress. And so here's what we do. We embrace learning as a lifestyle. I mean, are you a curious person? Are you curious when it comes to your relationship with God? Are you curious when, it, when you're going about your day? God, how are you at work? God, what, what are you up to in my life? What are some of the patterns of my heart and my soul that maybe got me to this point but won't get me to the next point? Listen, if you don't have room to ask questions, you don't have room to grow. And if you don't have room to grow, you certainly don't have room to change. And if you don't have room to change, you might as well just be dead. That's for free, okay? Because God's work in us is not completed. So we ask questions. We, we learn, and as importantly, we unlearn. We learn things that just simply aren't the best way. See, freedom is only possible if your spirit is teachable. And places God wants to lead us to, we have to be willing. We have to embrace this. Learning is our lifestyle. And so we're vulnerable. And we're honest. And we seek to become more and more self-aware. Why, why did I say that thing? What's going, what's going on inside of me? What are some of the desires that I have that are unmet and I'm trying to make up for them in other places? That's a teachable spirit. It's a teachable spirit. See, Solomon continues. Here's what he says. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Just a quick show of hands. Anybody have that on a coffee mug? Okay, fine, safe place, but you don't have to raise your hand, right? So here's, here's what he's saying. He says, everything in us wants to say that we're okay in and of ourselves, that, that we don't need to be teachable because we've got it all figured out. And what Solomon says to his son is, push back against that with a passion because it will lead to your death. It was interesting, in, in our writing team meeting, we meet every week to plan through the daily devotions that we're going to write for the coming week that go along with the sermon. Uh, Yvonne Beal, our young adult director, she had a great, great, great illustration about trust. And here's what she pointed out. She said that Eric Erickson, who's one of the great 21st century psychologists and developmental psychologists specifically, or 20, uh, 20th century, he said this. He said that trust is the first stage of any psychological development. That from the age of zero to 18 months, we as human beings 
are looking for things to trust. She writes, we come into the world wondering who and what we can trust. And when we get older, our trust is tested and sometimes it's even betrayed. And at that point, we often turn to control rather than walking in trust. For some reason, it feels easier to lean into our own understanding and to place trust in ourselves because we think, well, everybody else and everything else has let me down, but I will not fail me until we fail us, right? And Solomon goes, okay, no, 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 no. Push back against that. Push back against that pride. Self-reliance will always cause a distance between you and the God who wants to sustain and grow and correct you. So submit all of your heart and all of your ways. Don't hold any of them back before the light that God wants to shine on them. Give him your whole heart. Give him your whole life. Be wise not in your own eyes, but push back towards him. That's a, a teachable spirit. And God's laboratory for teaching us is our lives and his world. He's always at work. He teaches us through the scriptures, this disciplining action. He, he's at work teaching us, rebuking us, growing us, changing us. He's at work through other people. And he's at work in every portion of your day. If you're convinced that God is present with you, then you know, you know that he can use anything to grow you and to change you. So really quick, how to, how to know if you have a teachable spirit? Uh, just a few things. One is that when you're criticized, it leads to reflection rather than retaliation. So if you have a teachable spirit and somebody criticizes you, hopefully, maybe your first initial knee-jerk response is, oh, I'm going to get them, but then you're able to step back and, and, and wonder, is there anything true in that? Is there anything that, that I need to really look at there? That when we're criticized, we reflect instead of retaliate. That the questions in our minds, they, they stir the opportunity for dialogue rather than being defensive, and maybe a good diagnostic question to ask is, when was the last time I changed my mind about something? Just throw it out there. That if we're teachable, we value curiosity over certainty. Which is hard for people who are sort of grounded in religion. We want to be certain about things. But if we're teachable, we, we need to be curious. God, how are you changing, growing, shaping? What are the canoes I need to drop? That we, we seek to be, to hear rather than just to be heard. For teachable, we seek to hear rather than just to be heard. And if hypothetically we fail, we accept responsibility rather than casting blame. That, that's a teachable spirit. It's the posture of, God, I'm a work in progress and you're a master artist shape me, make me, mold me. We're grounded in his love. Our spirit is teachable. And finally, verse 2 and verse 8 of chapter 3 are interesting and maybe even a little bit uncomfortable. It says this, as we walk in the way of wisdom, as we embrace his teaching, that length of days and years and life and peace will, be, will add to you. So as you do this, good things are coming into your life. Verse 8 
It will be walking in the way of wisdom, embracing God's discipline, trusting in him, will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you'll start to go, this makes me a little bit almost uncomfortable. The, the reward that's held out for people who walk in the way of wisdom, the very real life. If you read through chapter three, the riches, the honor, the peace, the goodness, wholeness, blessing that come from God says will come back to you. Now, just a quick reminder, the Proverbs are principles, they're not promises. So it doesn't happen all of the time, but what Solomon is saying is that this is a hedonistic journey. That as we follow the way of God, as we walk in the way of as he would say, lady wisdom, she screams in the streets, as we walk with her, our expectation is one of favor, is one of goodness, and is one of blessing. Write this down. God's discipline always leads us to God's blessing. God's discipline of us always leads us to God's blessing for us. In the summer of 1498, Michelangelo was commissioned to sculpt uh, what would later be known as Pieta. And he, he was commissioned to make something so magnificent and so beautiful that it was not only unsurpassed, but that it was unsurpassable. And so he went to the, the marble quarries of Carrara, and for two months, he looked for the perfect piece of marble. And after he picked it out, and after he had it unearthed and brought to him, he spent the next two years of his life chiseling away at this piece of marble. Can you imagine the type of detail, the type of passion, the type of attention it would take to allow this to emerge from a solid piece of marble. Michelangelo is quoted as having said, I saw an angel in the midst of the marble and I carved until I set him free. He says later, every block of stone has a statue inside of it and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Friends, did you know that the scriptures say that you are God's workmanship, his masterpiece, his work of art, if you will, and he is at work in your life and in mine, chiseling, smoothing, shaping, saying, hey, that got you to a certain point. It got you to where you are, but it's never going to get you to where you're going. He is the great artist. The world is his canvas, and you are his masterpiece. And so, as he shapes us and molds us, and it sometimes hurts, and we sometimes don't like it, can I plead with you to remember that God's discipline, it's always personal, it's always unique to where you are and where God's leading you. It's always intentional. He has a plan. Every block has a statue inside of it, and he knows what it looks like. And it's beneficial. It's always for our good. And so, friends, 
as he charts a course for our joy that sometimes leads through affliction, may our posture be, God, we want to we wanna learn from it. We want to long for it. And God, we're going to last in it because we believe that you are good. Let's pray. So Jesus, uh, Spirit, Father, we come before you this morning admitting that there's areas in our life that we know you want to grow us. And so we want to be open to that. Would you remind us this morning that, that your love for us precedes your discipline of us? How would you give us a, a heart that's teachable, a willingness to trust and to follow you into the people you're causing us to become? And Father, may we be convinced this morning that because of your love, you are good. And so we say back to you, Lord, have your way in our life, we pray. In the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Hey, before we um, take off out of here, we have a, a special treat this morning. And I'm going to invite the Karch family. Would you guys come on up?